It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Sound on with Kevin Cirilli. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. You really have a divide within Team Trump. The president has to do exactly what people sent him here to do, which is to get it done. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. Tensions flaring between the U.S. and Iran and the U.K. What will President Trump's be response to all of this as we head into another uncertain weekend on the geopolitical front? We will bring you the latest. A busy week here in Washington, D.C., but all anyone is talking about tonight is the situation with Iran. And there's two major fronts that we are following. The first with regards to President Trump shooting down an Iranian drone. The president saying that the U.S. is responsible for taking down that Iranian drone and that they want to have communications with top Iran leaders. So that's that's issue number one. And then issue number two and this happening just within the last 24 hours, is that President Trump also saying he's going to work with U.K. government officials on a response to Iran's seizure of a British oil tanker that we now know, just within the last several minutes, the Iranians were holding in the Strait of Hormuz that they have since released. This has just been a very Iranian-centric news cycle and a lot of questions about what the U.S. policy will be around the world on this particular matter and where things stand. That's why we're so grateful to have three all-stars to guide us through it. David Tafiori, his first time on the program. He's a former State Department official focusing in the Middle Eastern region. He's also a former advisor to the Obama campaign. Maddie Dupler's here, senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union, former coalitions director to the House Republican Conference, and Anna Edgerton, Bloomberg News politics editor. Anna, I'll start with you. The president today suggesting what in terms of the White House policy with regards to Iran? Well, he, he said that he will indeed work with the U.K. in response to this tanker seizure. And, you know, it's been an interesting position for President Trump because he has had an interesting relationship with our allies. You know, the U.S. was party to the JCPOA, this Iranian nuclear deal, and withdrawing from that really put the president at odds with a lot of our European allies. And the Europe was kind of put in an interesting position where they had to decide either to not abide by the terms of the deal or to kind of carry the deal forward without the United States. The problem with that, of course, is that Iran wasn't seeing some of the financial benefits that they had hoped to see that they were promised in that deal. 
So right now it's kind of hard for the U.S. to work with allies, which <coughs> when it comes to diplomacy is really the best way to strengthen your hand. All right. So again, we're getting these new headlines, this reporting from other outlets that uh, the that the U.K. tanker, uh, it was a Liberian-flagged tanker that was released. It still appears that the U.K. vessel is still being held. I'll bring you the latest as that develops. Uh, David Tafuri, why why is why are they why are the Iranians holding this vessel? Basically, Iran wants to get attention, and it's getting it today um, from both of these acts and from the acts earlier in the week. And the reason that it wants that attention is Iran feels backed into a corner. Uh, the U.S. pulled out of the nuclear deal, and because it ratcheted sanctions up and European companies were not comfortable continuing to do business with Iran, they also have been observing the sanctions. That's really hurt Iran's economy. At the same time, the U.S. and the Trump administration doesn't have a diplomatic channel open. So there is actually nowhere for Iran to go. It can't solve this through diplomacy, and it can't back down. It wants to be maintain its respect. So what it does is it acts out. It uses the power and authorities that it has in order to strike back against the West. It's taken these two tankers, these British tankers. It's been doing provocative actions towards uh, U.S. naval ships, like flying drones over its ship. And most importantly, what it does, that's the most serious aggravation, is it uses its proxy forces in Syria and in Lebanon and in other countries. And that's where we could really face uh, the potential for this to escalate. The Strait of Hormuz is, is one of the most crucial global energy points in the region. So now you have Iran holding captive a UK tanker ship in this critical energy sector. And Matty Duppler, the president, just within the last 24 hours, saying that the US shot down an Iranian drone. This is a, a dramatic escalation in U.S.-Iranian tensions. Right, which is why I think it's so interesting to hear David say that this is Iran's, potentially their only option in order to get attention, to highlight how they're feeling in the, in the, uh, in the region now that the JCPOA is essentially from a bygone era. Anna's point, too, about European allies and what Europe did and will do now that the United States has basically washed its hands of the Iranian agreement, I think is another interesting point. Because, David, I wanted to put this question to you. Why is it that Iran can only show force? Why is it that we don't have diplomatic options here? Because we've been hearing a lot from the foreign minister about how potentially he might be open to negotiations, there's an opportunity for conversation. But you're saying, no, we might be past that, and Iran needs to flex this muscle in order to get the United States attention. Is that correct? Well, what ha what happened is that when Trump pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, which happened a little over a year ago, he didn't present re any actual real alternatives to Iran. In other words, he didn't say, I'm, we're gonna, we are going to pull out unless you do this, this, and this. He pulled out, and there isn't a strategy for reopening ne negotiations over that deal. And the things that he has demanded, which Pompeo set forth, are 12 things that Iran can never agree to. It, it basically requires them to give up the regime. And if you know about Iran, the only thing they care about is for the regime to survive. So they have to use violence in order to 
provoke the, the West and in order to galvanize support for their regime and show that they are being victimized by the West. That's how they do it. They want the U.S. to respond. It would actually be helpful if the U.S. engaged in a military attack because they would use that to rally the people in favor of the regime. You're saying it would be helpful to, from Tehran's perspective if the U.S. were to— I think so, unfortunately, yes. So the two big developments that we're following tonight with David Sefiori, a former State Department official, as well as Maddie Dupler and Anna Edgerton, number one— Iran still holding captive an, a, 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 a U.K. tanker in the Strait of Hormuz. Number two, the U.S. Uh, shooting down an Iranian drone. I want to bring you comment from earlier today from President Trump when he was asked directly about the U.K. tanker. Take a listen to the president of the United States. This only goes to show what I'm saying about Iran. Trouble, nothing but trouble. And remember this, the agreement, the ridiculous agreement made by President Obama expires in a very short period of time. It was a short-term agreement. When you're dealing in countries, you have to deal in 50 years and 100 years. You don't deal in the short term. President Trump speaking earlier today about his decision to withdraw the United States from the JCPOA or the Iran nuclear disarmament deal. That was a, that has now since become a political divide here in the U.S. Democrats arguing that the Tehran temper tantrum, for, back of, for lack of a better terminology, is part of the reason because of the U.S. decision to withdraw from the JCPOA. That is part of the reason why we're seeing the Tehran temper tantrum that we've seen. Uh, exhibit A, the, the Tehran's holding captive a UK uh, tanker. Uh, Republicans saying that the Tehran temper tantrum is a result of the crippling economic sanctions that have been placed upon Tehran uh, that have really forced them to, to lash out. Uh, David Safiori, which side, I mean, which is it? Well, I mean, I mean, both are right in a sense. The uh, Iran is a uh, the U.S. is right to be unhappy with Iran because of its conduct in supporting terrorism and in supporting these proxy forces in Syria and in Iraq and around the world. Um, at the same time, the U.S. and Trump, when they pulled out of the Iran deal, which was not perfect, it had a lot of flaws. They didn't have an alternative plan. They didn't propose another deal. What the U.S. should have done is gone to our European partners who helped us negotiate this deal and said, we want to rework this deal. Unify with us in a unified front towards Iran and demand that the deal be made stronger or else. We didn't do that. And when we pulled out of the deal without leaving other options, we left no diplomatic channels, which is why Iran is acting out. And unfortunately now, there is no real path forward. I don't see any real possibility that we're not going to see more confrontations between the U.S., the U.K., our European uh, allies, and Iran, because that's what Iran wants. President now. Trump, uh, Anna Edgerton, Bloomberg News politics editor, saying essentially, Iran, you, you better not do anything stupid. Take a listen to what the president had to say earlier today. We hope for their sake they don't do anything foolish. If they do, they will pay a price like nobody's ever paid a price. So... Well, that's the risk is like, how do you interpret a quote unquote stupid act? You know, there's a lot of room for miscalculation here when you're just kind of sending signals by, for example, it looks like this tanker was briefly detained to ensure compliance with environmental standards. But, you know, you see those headlines and you have a reaction that gets put in place and that risks escalating and maybe a... Uh, um, 
not reciprocal uh, reaction like the president likes to say. And you remember, the president ordered strikes on Iranian oil fields and then called that off with like 10 minutes left to go. You know, planes in formation. And there was that dramatic you know, middle of the night decision by the president to not go, to not follow through with that strike because he was worried about the loss of life in response to an Iranian ag aggression that he said was not as bad as what the U.S. was prepared to do. We're following all things Iran. The AP now reporting that the Iran, Iran says second tanker has exited Iranian waters. Uh, and and Fars has reported Friday that the Liberian-flagged tanker was briefly detained in the Strait of Hormuz and given a notice to comply with environmental regulations before being allowed to continue on its way. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, and all eyes focusing on the debt ceiling. Will the U.S. default on its debt? Here with me for the hour, two all-stars, three all-stars, but especially on the debt. Maddie Doppler, Senior Fellow at the National Taxpayers Union and former Coalition's Director for the House Republican Conference, and Anna Edgerton, Bloomberg News Politics Editor, Anna, are we going to default on our debt? No, Kevin, we're not going to default on our debt. Good. Um, <laughs> I feel like that's a positive thing. It's Friday. We're only yeah. optimists here on the Friday we show. Are, sound I, on. I'm always an optimist. I think, <laughs> the, I think the country needs more optimism. Yeah, Reassuring markets going into the weekend. Hey, you know, I, I, I mean, listen, I'm no Jay Powell. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just a millennial trying to make a living as a journalist. Go ahead, Anna. So, all parties want to and give the Treasury more borrowing authority so that we don't miss payments as early as September. So. We only have a week to do this um, because Congress, because the House is scheduled to leave on July 26th. You're really optimistic weeks. if you think Congress can get a deal in a week. <laughs> Let me explain. Especially after the week we've well, had. Let me explain. So, if, so they're trying to attach a budget caps agreement, which is where the real sticking point is. If they can't get the budget caps figured out this week, they will probably just do a short-term debt limit agreement to pass this week and give them more time to negotiate the budget caps. They are close to a solution on the budget caps, which would allow them to have more government spending on defense and non-defense discretionary issues. And so if they can figure out those last final details, Pelosi, uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin just spoke by phone at 4 p.m. today. So we're waiting to get a readout from that and see if they are any closer to getting a deal. And Speaker Pelosi and Secretary Mnuchin have been the two who've been in constant contact since the beginning of the week trying to hammer this out. So there are adults in the room. What, what a week for them. Week. I mean, you yeah, got right. like for real. hashtag AOC. Go ahead. Oh, I know. Yeah. If you're a Speaker Pelosi, you deserve a big glass of red wine at the end of today because it has been a heck of a week. Um, but, you know, the debt limit, Congress had been operating under the assumption that they had up until the end of the fiscal year to come to a, a consensus on what they would do on these budget caps, bundle that together with the debt limit and get that passed at the end of September. As Anna mentioned, we're now coming up against the August recess and it is go time. Treasury has said we're running out of extraordinary measures. And as a result, Congress needs to come up with a solution. Now, it is interesting because it seems to be the last readout we got this morning, it seems to be the sticking point is not simply the spending numbers <laughs> for the uh, the budget caps that both sides, both Democrats and Republicans, want raised. It's the pay-fors that the White House itself has suggested they need in order to get Republican votes on this. Now, I would remind listeners, too, that all of our budget deals in the past several years that have set us up for the scenario where we're talking um, uh, spending limits on non-defense discretionary and defense discretionary have been bipartisan bills. And uh, 
Two Februarys ago, we had the last budget deal that altered the terms of what was initially set into law um, in 2011, signed by President Obama, but passed by both chambers of Congress, that's uh, created these budget caps that Congress now has to deal with every They're year. They're busting through the caps. Right. So Democrats now are saying that pay-fors are unacceptable. We'll see if they say all pay-fors are unacceptable and they simply want to raise those caps, or if they acknowledge that both sides have agreed to these caps in the past, and therefore there needs to be some understanding that we can't continue to bust them every time a new fiscal year rolls over. You know what I love about the Friday show with Maddie Dupler is that we can just nerd out and dive into the <laughs> We're talking budget caps and pay for Who doesn't want to talk budget no. caps on a Friday afternoon when it's I mean, 100 I million do, degrees? I have literally no, I mean, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's great. But David Sefiori, a former State Department official, former advisor to the Obama campaign, put this in perspective about what message defaulting on our debt would send to China, would send to the Middle East, would send to Europe if they're unable to get a deal. Well, the one thing we have going for us right now is all those countries just mentioned recognize that we have a very strong economy. So while we have all this political divisiveness here, there's a lot of criticism of President Trump, we have some foreign policy crises on the horizon, we actually have a really good economy and people respect America because of our economy now. So that would really hurt that. But to zoom out a little bit, we have to wonder why do we still have a debt limit? It's an artificial thing. It doesn't stop us from spending money. It just it's just what stops us from paying for what we've already spent. So yeah. we ought to focus on caps, spending caps, and we ought to get rid of this debt limit. Uh, right? yeah, words, Shouldn't Freedom we? Caucus. <laughs> well, no, I think it's interesting. This is an interesting question when you look at Don't the dynamics. Don't tell Mark Meadows. Well, when you look at the dynamics in Congress, it's actually an interesting question because up until 2010, when you had uh, Democrats particularly in control those most recent years of Congress, they simply would attach the debt limit to the budget and it would be deemed uh, passed with any budget. So that means that the debt limit, David, to your point, would effectively not exist because it would just exist to serve you know whatever what? budget was passed in the Listen, I don't want to be responsible for any car crashes because people, there are a lot of people listening in their cars right now who almost swerved off the road <laughs> when they heard that David Tafuri of, of the State Department said, why do we need a debt to, why $22 trillion worth of debt? I mean, a lot of folks would argue, hey, you know what, uh, maybe we should... You but know, it doesn't control the spending. Right. As a, the, and, and, and I will, I would I argue... It's an interesting debate. And I'm not taking a side. Kevin, I would argue, though, that the politics over the debt limit have actually served to limit some spending. The example of that being that 2011 budget deal, which created discretionary caps, which created the sequester, and actually dialed discretionary spending levels back from where they'd been in the previous two years. Now, does that speak to the $22 trillion in, in debt that we have amassed as a country? No, because it doesn't get to the mandatory spending programs that are ultimately the drivers of that <sighs> debt. So as a mechanism oh itself, doesn't work. Work as a political tool sometimes works. Now we're at a point where I think it has uh, probably exhausted all of its utility and we everything need to get around is, it. Everything is just changing. I mean, <laughs> life is just upside down. Now Democrats are concerned about the debt and Republicans are just completely flipping things. And it's I just, will say yeah. this is why Democrats massively roll their eyes when Republicans say we need offsets for these spending increases because the GOP tax cut from 2017, of course, was not offset. All right. Listen to what President Trump said about the debt ceiling today. He says it's not negotiable. Here he is. I said I remember to Senator Schumer and to Nancy Pelosi, would anybody ever use that to negotiate with? They said absolutely not. That's a sacred element of our country. Oh, boy. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. What a week in Washington. Boy, oh boy. I mean, it is hot. It's humid. The rhetoric here in Washington, it's abominable. I mean, it's just so heightened and everyone's attacking everybody. You know, last night I couldn't sleep, so I watched the unedited version. Unedited. Gail King of CBS News interviewing the squad earlier this week. It's like 33 minutes and it's AOC, Rashid Tlaib, uh, Ayanna Presley, and uh, Ilan Omar, uh, the four, the squad. I got to tell you, it Gail did such an amazing job. I mean, it was just like a masterclass in how to interview four different people at once. It makes my job, you know, we're grateful for my job. It also makes it look easy because I only got two people staring <laughs> at me right now in the studio. David Tafiori, former advisor to the Obama campaign. He's also a former State Department official. He worked heavily on Iraqi policy during uh, the initial phase of Operation Iraqi Freedom. And Maddie Dupler's here, senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union, former coalitions director for the House Republican Conference. And I'm obsessed with the tension that we saw on full display within the Democratic Party. Uh, I want to get, I, we've talked enough about the rhetoric, mm-hmm. but the tension of policy. And that was my biggest takeaway from the squad Gail King interview was they're, they're like, the squad is on a completely different page. They're not even in the same book totally. as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And now it's spilling out on the campaign trail. And that's why, so as someone who worked in the House Republican Conference during the advent of the House Freedom Caucus, I find it so fascinating to watch Democrats go through a little bit of this kind of, uh, figure out this tension on their own. But it was instructive, I think, what happened over the course of the last week, because the old axiom is still true no matter what side of the aisle you are on, which is that it only matters how many votes you got, right? So the House Freedom Caucus could actually create policy changes within the Republican conference because they had 30 votes that would affect the way something would go on the floor. Four people is not a majority maker in the House of Representatives. I disagree, though. I get the point. I get the Washington perspective. Okay, of, so let's of bring votes. it, though, to policy. But tell though, it like to John said. Boehner. Well, How did the Tea Party treat John but Boehner? But like if John if 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 Speaker Boehner had only had to deal with four rabble rousers instead of thirty, it would have been a completely uh, different okay, fair problem point. for him. Um and that's you know why I think it's interesting. So fast forward then to what happens this week, yesterday on the House floor, where there's a vote on the minimum wage, where progressives have been saying for a long time, this isn't going far enough, we're not gonna vote for this, we're gonna tank this if it doesn't uh, continue to get more progressive. Well it actually created some more centrist uh, or included some more centrist uh, concessions when it eventually hit the floor. And ultimately, those were the votes that Democrats lost and only a handful of them otherwise. So I think it shows that when particularly the squad wants to make a point, they're going to use their um, megaphone to do so. But when it comes to effectuating votes on the floor, they had, do not have a successful track record. David, if you already come in here, 
Is there that much space between Pelosi and the squad, or am I being a dramatic journalist? There's a lot of space between Pelosi and the squad, and a lot of space between the squad and who the Democratic nominee is going to be for president. And that's the real danger uh, for the Democrats about what's happened, is that the squad has sucked up all of the oxygen for Democrats this week. And it allows President Trump to paint the Democrats as more extreme and more far left than they actually are because the squad is way more left than the the eventual nominee, the I Democratic mean, Party. Well, and I'm obsessed with this story in the Washington Post uh, that our executive producer, Christine Barada, is also equally as obsessed. From Matea Gold in the Post, she's a uh, quote, and this is the headline, Labor fight Royals Bernie Sanders campaign as workers demand the 15-hourly pay the candidate has proposed for employees nationwide. According to the Post, unionized campaign organizers working for Senator Bernie Sanders' presidential effort are battling with its management. Isn't the ma- This is me talking. Mm-hmm. Isn't the management Bernie Sanders arguing <laughs> that the compensation and treatment they are receiving does not meet the standards Sanders espouses in his rhetoric according to internal communications this i, I got to go to the demo- I, I, I i david Tafuri, i mean go ahead i mean your response <laughs> to the minimum wage on the sanders campaign i'm actually speechless i the, the post has me speechless well i look at this story and i also look at the story that came out uh, several weeks ago that bernie sanders earned a couple million dollars since the last election and you put those th- two things together it really hurts his image as a class crusader, as someone who's standing up for the poor, who's fighting for the poorer classes and for the middle class. So it shows some hypocrisy, and I think that's really going to hurt him. And hypocrisy hurts every presidential candidate, except it doesn't really seem to hurt Trump. (laughs) Well, and I think it goes one step further with this particular experience because it, I think, shows that the fantasy of some of the policy solutions that people like Bernie Sanders are supplying are a lot harder to put into practice than they are to campaign on, right? I mean, if you can't even make a $15 minimum wage work for your campaign, which is a small, narrow pool of candidates, how are you going to make it work for the rest of the country? And Bernie Sanders, I think, needs to answer that question. I just think the images of campaign employees... Like, what do you call it? Occupy Bernie Sanders campaign? I I don't know. Take a listen to what Senator Bernie Sanders said during the June 2019 uh, uh, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, on the campaign trail about the issue of minimum wage. Here's Sanders. I think a seven and a quarter minimum wage right now is a starvation wage. It is a disgrace. Minimum wage has not been raised in 12 years. So I am pushing very hard to make sure that we have a $15 minimum wage so that if you work 40 hours in this country, you can live with a shred of dignity. That's not a lot of money. But David Tafuri, what if you're working on his presidential campaign? <laughs> it's, and you work a lot more than 40 hours oh, a week you when sure you're covering do. a presidential mm-hmm. campaign. I know from experience. So, I mean, Lord knows how much time they spend. But, like, you know, I mean, it's a lot of hours. It's really odd that he can't straighten this out. And he's raised a lot of money. This isn't a guy at the bottom in terms of fundraising. So he's getting a lot of money. Why can't he give it out to his staffers? People got to wonder that. Well, and the the so the problems with the minimum wage when you look at the policy debate here is that the elastic component of it is can be really severe. If we were to enter an economic recession and we had a higher minimum wage, that means fewer jobs. CBO came out with a report last week before the House voted on this bill saying that it made it 
may uh, it, it it would require less net income for all earners across the country because it lowers those sorts of opportunities. And the bill that the House passed got rid of exceptions that are built in for something like a campaign, something that is on its face temporary work that wouldn't satisfy some of the requirements of full-time employment. This bill that the House voted on got rid of those too. So the people who you potentially might want to try and get in the door because either they're inexperienced, they've worked on a volunteer basis, they're working for a campaign that on its face is not going to exist for how much longer? And that's not a statement about Bernie Sanders. I'm just saying that's a statement about campaigns. They don't last forever. You don't have to be important. I'm the journalist. You, you're the Republican <laughs> I'm just saying they don't you last forever. You want. But like my point is that minimum wage requirements, particularly ones that begin at the federal level, hurt those sorts of people because they decrease the amount of flexibility that they have in their workforce and their ability to demand that's, value for I their hear, labor. I hear the point you're making. And uh, just to full disclosure, what the other side would say is, well, wait a minute. I mean, come on. There's got to be some some impetus on behalf of the government. I do want to just get to this poll quickly. We're talking about 2020. NBC, NBC News out with a poll earlier this morning, and Joe Biden still leading the Democratic presidential field among Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents. He's got 25 percent. Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders at number two, 16 percent, locked in a dead statistical tie with Senator Elizabeth Warren, who was also at 16 percent, and Kamala Harris rounding out uh, in third place, uh, for the fourth candidate name, but in third place technically, uh, with 14 percent. All the rest have less than 10. You're listening to Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. Well, it was a hot day. I mean, I guess it's a be- it's always a beautiful day, like U2 sings on one of my all-time favorite albums. That song there always puts me in a good mood, but it's hot, hot and humid. And what a wild week. It's why I'm so thrilled to have David Tafuri here with us for the hour, his first time on the program. Will you come back, David? I'd love to come back. Okay, you're on the record. He's on the record. He's coming back. He's the former he's a former State Department official and also a former advisor to the Obama campaign. Maddie Dupler here. She's a senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union, former coalitions director for the House Republican Conference. I'm Kevin Cirilli, chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. We're going to be talking more about Mueller next week when he finally testifies on Capitol Hill. So I don't know. I mean, I I think every word will be you know, gleaned and dissected. It's going to be like the Fed when we like try and watch every <laughs> single word that Jay Powell says. It's going to be like that. It's going to be Mueller watch I trying to this. divine exactly what the this. verb tense he used means in the grander scheme you of know, things. Now, this is how you got to stand out. You got to know your audience, Maddie Duffler. <laughs> and there, I can't think of any other real estate in Washington, D.C. where it would be like, Mueller day is going to be like, like Fed speak. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I got it. I'm with you. I totally agree. What's on your radar, David, for next week? Well, at the beginning of this week, we thought the U.S. was going to sanction Turkey. And it was going to sanction Turkey because Turkey has finally accepted the first shipment of these S-400 rockets from Russia. This is a provocation. Turkey is a member of NATO. The fact that it's not using U.S.-made equipment and it's going to Russia is a big problem for the U.S. and for NATO. But somehow, the sanctions didn't happen. And that's the big question. Well, I think most people in the State Department, Treasury Department, Department of Defense wanted this to happen. So I have to guess that President Trump had either overruled it or has at least delayed it. This is a big deal also for the world economy because Turkey is a big player in the world economy, especially in the Middle East. Turkey's relationship with Russia and how and, and given its standing in NATO, I mean, it's like Turkey's playing everybody. 
Well, it's so oh, interesting. They're trying to. Because a year ago at this time, we were worried about Turkey going into a recession so deep that no central bank could pull it out of it. Like, we were talking about contagion fears yeah. and what that was going to do the rest of the region. I, I, I find it fascinating because Turkey kind of comes and goes on our domestic political radar. But to your point, David, it is hugely important and we need to be paying better attention to it. What's on your radar? So, I actually want to call attention to a piece that was in the New York Times yesterday saying that drug overdose deaths dropped in the U.S. for the first time since 1990. Oh, yeah. I've seen this is the first data point on this. This is such good news. It, it, well, and that's the thing. I wanted to bring that up because, again, Kevin, we are the eternal optimists. We want to end on some good news here. But I do think that we talk a lot about the drug challenges that we have in this country. We need to acknowledge when there are some improvements made so we can identify how we continue to fix this problem. That is certainly a good data point to Jay hear. Jay Powell going the talked week. about this when he testified, I think either in the Senate or the House, uh, just last week, mm-hmm. uh, when he said that if you look at the unemployment in working men it, it, the, and the rate of addiction it's just tragic and and yeah more has to be done that that should be zero we should have zero addiction rate in the united states you know what's on my radar what Kevin? well first of all, all, all no joking aside iran very much on my radar for the next uh, 24 48 and 72 hours especially as we're still following the story uh with the iranian authorities seizing two vessels friday in the strait of hormuz and it comes following the president's decision to shoot down a drone. And so the escalating tensions between the U.S. and Iran still very much uh, on the minds of many Americans tonight. Uh, and then, but really, like the other, the sideshow, not, I mean, talk about a pivot. This is a terrible pivot. But <laughs> the sideshow is this FaceApp thing. Have uh-huh. you guys heard about this? Oh, sure. Now have. Chuck Schumer wants an investigation. Can't make it up. You've got FaceApp. They're concerned. It's this thing. Everyone's taking selfies, like mm-hmm. Kardashian selfies. They're taking selfies, and then it like makes you look old. Why would you want to see yourself looking old? I 100% agree with you, Kevin. My family was all using this. They were sending their selfies back and forth, like, Maddie, you do it. I'm like, no. Yeah, I am delaying that inevitability as long as I can. Putin, allegedly, is like orchestra. First of all, this is like only the Russians would be like, let us develop an app so that <laughs> you can see yourself old. Right. And then we'll get what what data are they even getting, David? Well, it's pretty brilliant, right? I mean, it plays into just how venal we are all are. We want to look into the mirror at father time and see what we'll look like. And from what I can tell from friends and 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 associates who've done it, it's really accurate. It looks makes them look like what I think they are gonna look like when they're old. And I'd like to see those pictures later on when they're old and see if it got it right. I'm, a, I'm ageless. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You are you are timeless, Kevin. I don't know about ageless. <laughs> but it's but literally, like, no joking, the fact that this that the Russians allegedly have injected this viral app into American culture so quickly and it penetrated so effectively, and now Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer wants an investigation. <sighs> I mean, that's that's all I got. That sigh is where I'm at. Uh, that we got to leave it there. All we right. got to leave it there. I want to thank everybody. I want to thank David Sefiori, Maddie Dupler. It's always great having you on. And I appreciate you coming on. And that's it for me. Download the Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.